dimension of risk is an important and underexplored aspect of risk management issues. How we perceive risk, understanding patterns of behaviour and seeing how these relate to the processes of decision making and policy development needs greater exploration. The Cambridge Centre for Risk Studies second annual meeting, the human dimension of risk, perception, behaviour and decision-making in risk management took on that gigantic challenge. Michelle Tuverson is Executive Director of the Centre for Risk Studies based at the University of Cambridge Judge Business School. Somebody asked me, what is everybody going to get since they come from so many different backgrounds? Why would they want to spend two days here at this meeting? And the way I answered it is, There are many commercial conferences out there that focus specifically on risk. What we're trying to do at the center is look at questions and look at disciplines that wouldn't traditionally be uh, studied elsewhere and um, to be able to provide perspectives from different fields. So these are not things that you get in the commercial world. So I believe that's what the academic um, uh, offering can be. And that's very much a Cambridge thing as well, isn't it? Cambridge University with all its different colleges. And, And then you have here all these people from different fields all over the world. It's an international, global conference too. I believe that's the strength of Cambridge. It's a very interdisciplinary environment for having these kinds of discussions, exploratory discussions, and people aren't afraid to um, uh, look at these from a different perspective. The conference set out to encourage debate and provoke thought across conventional boundaries. It first explored perception, then behaviour, then decision-making. Whether we face an environmental catastrophe such as floods, earthquakes or droughts or health-related global epidemics like AIDS or swine flu or man-made perils such as economic crashes or financial risk, organisations have to develop strategies to cope and there's a need to improve the methodology for developing these Michelle Tuverson again. We have organized the meeting into sort of three major strands. Perception is uh, very contextual. There's a cultural perspective on how people view risk and uh, the, the kind of perspectives that one might take that has a huge cultural bias associated with it. Um, the next strand is on behavior. And we look at some of the inherent behaviors that people may have to learn behaviors. And then um, the final strand being around decision-making. And we're trying to challenge traditional decision-making approaches that have been used largely in the financial markets around rational decision theory. And uh, we bring in um, psychologists, sociologists, uh, an expert, Richard Bronk, in the Nightian uncertainty, uh, where he's trying to infuse some of the romantic um, ideas on risk. We cannot look at risk from a very parochial view, but we must look at it from a global perspective. And the only way to do that is to bring the people in. Some think the link between organizational culture and risk management is underappreciated. 
It was only in the aftermath of the financial crash and the economic downturn that organisations began to assess how they had originally assessed those risks, which some had been warning of, but few had listened. Andrew Freeman, Executive Director, Deloitte Centre for Financial Services, sums up the panel discussion on cultures in crisis. Well, as you say, it was a panel session. And so what we'd assembled were um, four people with very different backgrounds um, to try and get a range of insights into how organisations should and do um, think about kind of anticipating when things go wrong. And and it's it's, it's not quite just disaster planning. It's about how their whole cultures are set up um, to, to think in advance. They, wait, they may not know exactly what's going to go wrong, but, but how, how are you going to respond and have you got the right systems and people in place when, when things do go wrong, because things go wrong all the time. And I think it was very interesting that, that um, I think we got some real insights around, um, in particular, how how important cultures are so within an organization how people behave and how they're expected to behave kind of day to day just on a kind of normal basis turns out to be terribly important for how they are then able to respond when things go wrong i mean first of all it it, it impacts on how they um, uh, anticipate so how they plan for how they discuss how that maybe how they have a kind of open debate around things that can go wrong rather than all just having a, a kind of a consensus on what they're doing yeah and, and if, if we take some of the speakers they were mentioning things like you know that, that we people did know the risks of the crash and and, and there, there were discussions about it surprisingly now before that that uh, crash happened, but, but actually they didn't speak up. So, so you need different members of the team to do different things at different times. You do, and, and one of the really interesting comments or, or insights based on experience among the panel was um, an organisation that actually um, you know, failed and, and, and was taken over during the financial crash or the financial crisis in 2008, um, where he, he, he pointed out, the panellists pointed out that there'd been a change of management who had then tried to change the culture and how decisions got made and moved from quite a kind of, um, um, a kind of top-down um, decision-making model towards one of more consensus-seeking. And, and that, that led to a lot of discussion about things might be about to go terribly wrong. So they, as you say, they knew the signals were all there. But because they changed the decision-making style and it didn't fit the culture, you, you, you can't shift a culture overnight, um, it actually, at the, at the wrong time, made them more vulnerable to very fast-moving events. So there was this kind of tremendous irony that when, when the organization, as it were, tried to move its culture to be more anticipatory, it actually um, contributed to blowing itself up. I thought that was a fascinating example. In a global internet world, the complexities of assessing these risks when financial markets and information sources move ever quicker are daunting. Management regimes of command and control have had to become more flexible and disaster management scenario planning is uppermost in people's minds again. For instance, is the information you receive in the first few minutes of a disaster accurate? Freeman again. So we got a very broad range of, of experience brought to bear on that observation. So um, everything from you know, managing the news about a natural disaster um, through, um, in, in one case, you know, a, a life and death situation where um, the, the initial information about an incident that had happened actually turned out to be inaccurate. But, of course, people had started to swing into action and take, take certain steps and had to then you know, rapidly reverse course when they realized they were dealing with something very different. So I think that that, that, that role of, of kind of perception, and, and we heard, too, quite a lot about the role that the media play in, in, in 
uh, both kind of reacting to and to some extent shaping those perceptions, how important that is as, as, a, as part of a broader challenge around this issue of, of, of kind of anticipating and then managing crises. And, and you mentioned, didn't you, in, in terms of sort of natural disaster planning, actually our own government, if you like, disaster planners are being cut back. And then someone else mentioned, another panellist, about you know, the disasters in China and Pakistan and, and how actually within a crisis there's complexity and you need governments to, to regulate or, or, or manage those complexities. Right. Uh, one, of, one of the, I thought, very interesting perspectives was from our panellist from Southeast Asia talking about the impact of, um, on the one hand, the rise of megacities and, and the sheer, just the scale and complexity of, of the risk management challenges at a government level and a kind of local government level that that raises. And then contrasting that with, with okay, th- th- those cities are obviously huge material uh, and cultural investments and, and, that, and co- real concentrations of population and wealth. So you, you want to think about them a lot in terms of disaster planning. Um, but that, as, as we've seen with things like the floods in Pakistan and China, um, it's, it, it may be that it's in the rural areas where there's still very large populations, but they're, they're less dense and, and, and far more diverse. Um, the infrastructure and, and, and the kind of, um, the, the, if you like, the, the, the economy of contingency planning doesn't exist because it's, it's, it's just it's a scale thing. It's just too expensive for developing nations to, to have that degree of preparedness. And that that's a major issue that, that countries are in, in that region are, are really having to address in light of the, the sort of things we've seen over the last year or so. Can the brain be compared to a business model? In the perception session, Professor Ed Bullmore, Cambridge Department of Psychiatry and Director, Behavioural and Clinical Neuroscience Institute, argued that it could He likened the brain to a network organisation with the principles of running a successful business. The analogy that I was trying to make uh, in my talk was that maybe we can think about how the brain is organised in the same way that we might think about how a business uh, could be organised. So, you know, a business adds value and it tries to control its costs. Uh, And I was making the argument that the brain obviously also adds value in terms of the kind of thinking it does and the cognitive processes it, it uh, delivers. And it's very um, ingeniously constructed. You said it was constructed of networks, didn't you? And, and sort of the, the networks were like a business. Yeah, I think that it's the network organisation gives you diversification of function. So the brain can do many different kinds of processes which depend on somewhat different network architectures. Um, it's set up in a way that allows it to shift rapidly between different kinds of network organization depending on what kind of cognitive processing it's doing at any given time. And the overall architecture of the brain, the way it's wired, is economical in terms of the, the cost uh, that it takes to build a brain and to run a brain. is not minimized, but it is uh, kept under control uh, so that the, the, the body as a whole doesn't pay any more for the brain's uh, functions than it has to. And, and you did talk about the cost, if you can cost a brain, and, and you talked about how expensive and, and almost you did a cost-benefit analysis on the brain. Yeah. So I think you can think about the costs as fixed costs and variable costs or marginal costs. So the fixed costs, if you like, are you know, the, 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 what it costs us over the course of uh, you know, 20, 20 years of normal development to grow a brain, uh, and that's uh, obviously a, a huge uh, sunk cost, if you like, and then there are the day-to-day metabolic costs of, of actually running a brain, having built it. Um, I made the analogy to a Google server farm. 
So I think if you think about a sort of a server farm, there's a, there's a big fixed cost there in terms of getting the servers into a building, and then there'll be big uh, variable costs day-to-day in terms of the air conditioning, the electricity to keep it all running. And I think you can think about those two kinds of cost for brain networks as well as for computer networks and perhaps other kind of uh, organisations. So if a brain is a network like a business and designed to deliver a diversity of functions efficiently, how do we ensure that this expensive bit of kit doesn't get overloaded in a crisis? Adaptability is key, but costs shouldn't be driven down to the floor. Professor Bullmore again. If you were to design a brain and say the only thing that matters is minimising the cost, what you'd end up with as a network would be a very regular lattice-type organisation where you know, particular brain regions or particular brain cells were only connected to the ones that were closest to them in space. That will minimise the cost, but you pay a severe penalty for that, which is that the brain network can never really operate as a globally integrated workspace. And that turns out to be an important architecture to support the kind of more problem-solving uh, thinking that the brain can do. So if you drive cost to the floor, you end up with a brain that wouldn't be very good at reasoning, it wouldn't be very good at uh, novelty detection, perhaps finding new solutions to unanticipated problems. Uh, all of those sort of higher-order functions that depend on conscious effort um, mean that we have to pay a bit of a premium when it comes to the wiring cost of the brain. And, and you did talk about, you know, um, the architect of complexity, someone you said you, you admired and had read re- recently, but managing the risk of change, there was a hierarchy in all of this. Yeah, so that was Herbert Simon, actually, who was, uh, you know, uh, he was originally an economist, and he thought about how systems could, uh, could be best designed to adapt to changing demands, which could be, you know, changing demands for performance, you know, on a minute-by-minute basis, or it could be slower kind of evolutionary pressures. Uh, And the the conclusion that he came to was that if you want a system uh, to be adaptive or evolvable, it's best if it uh, has some modularity in its organization. If you can break it up into bits uh, almost completely, uh, that allows the system as a whole to evolve more rapidly because you can evolve one bit at a time or you can adapt one bit of the system at a time while retaining you know, the function of the other components of the system, uh, and that turns out to be very very advantageous for the adaptivity of the the network overall. So the the Simon insight was that lots of different physical processing systems, information processing systems, are going to have this uh, property. He called it near decomposability. You should nearly be able to pull them apart, but not quite. Uh, and that gives them this, uh, this advantage in terms of rapid adaptivity to change. In Asia, two billion people live on $2 a day or less. Improving life chances through insurance could be a way of improving health care and lives too. In the behaviour session of the Centre for Risk Studies' second annual meeting, The Human Dimension of Risk, the conference focused on insights from the Asian micro-insurance markets. Professor Harris Shah, Chairman of Advisory Board, Institute of Catastrophe Risk Management, Nanyang Technological University, Singapore. This afternoon, I talked about the Asian perspective of risk management. 
in lots of work over the last 50 years, we have seen understanding of the risk profile of people in the western part of the world. We have understood how to deal with those risks. We have tried with various products and ideas and uh, solutions of minimizing or mitigating those risks in North America and Europe. Very little work has been done in mitigating the risk, managing the risk of those who are at the bottom of the pyramid. We need to understand what happens to them. Are there ways in which we can help them through conventional solutions such as insurance, reinsurance, risk transfer, and it turns out that there are ways in which we can do it. And my talk had to do with first understanding what's the problem. Second, understanding what are the constraints. And third, understanding how to develop solutions in which everybody wins. When disaster hits, it's the poor of the world who suffer most through flood, famines and earthquakes and diseases such as AIDS. The biggest challenges of the 21st century will be water and food, improving health care and providing micro-insurance to the poor is now feasible and is being piloted in China and in India. Professor Harish Shah again. At first, thinking about it, the problems are insurmountable. But again, going back to the fact that I'm an engineer, I like to solve problems one step at a time. And I believe that there are certain things we can do to help farmers, rural poor, the farmers, dealing with the, the security of their crops, security of their livelihood. And we are currently looking at what can they afford, why they don't do insurance, why the insurance companies are not interested in selling them. And after understanding some of these constraints, we have found that there are some excellent solutions available and we believe that these farmers are excited about it. We have seen that some of the farmers who feel that there is a solution at hand are becoming more aggressive in, their, in their, uh, what they are growing, how they are growing. And I believe that in a given region with the same number of farmers and the same type of patterns of weather, we can increase the production, mainly because the farmers are becoming more aggressive. And that is changing their behaviour, because yes. your session was the be behavioural Correct. one. Correct. We can take behaviours at present and actually change people's perceptions and then change their actions, how they relate to these risks. That is correct. By something so simple as insurance. Yes, exactly. What you described is exactly what is happening, and we predict that if applied at a national level, it could change the profile of uh, agriculture as a contributor to the GDP. It could change the profile of farmers as not only poor, but those who become entrepreneurial. They can change the kind of uh, crops that they are going to grow. The idea is you must provide them security that it is not one-shot deal and if you fail you are dead and if you don't fail uh, you are going to be okay. We have to have on the negative side a, a safety net so that they, don't, they understand they are not going to fall and die. And, and that is 
the levels at which you then have to operate to disseminate that information are local, national and global. That again is a challenge. It's a challenge. And the reason it is challenge is each society, especially rural society, is different. Even in one country, let's take India, the way people think in the north and the way people think in the south, in the same country, in rural uh, India are different. So you have to take the basic idea and kind of modify it for the region so that the basic idea is not violated, but the way you implement it, the tactical part, you change. India and China both have problems in terms of poverty. But if you try to apply products that you have developed in India, in China, it just wouldn't work. Just would not work. Thank you.